Social Gastronomy. I'm a culinary historian and author of the book Eight Flavors, The Untold Story of uh, American Cuisine. I forgot the name of my own book title. It's right there. It's right there. There it is. Available. Go buy it. The bookstore is everywhere. This right here, this is Jonathan Soma. Soma, what do you do when you're at home? When I'm at, oh, God, it's all just cats all the time. Yeah, when uh, you're at home. In theory, I founded the Brooklyn Brainery once upon a time. I that's think that's true. my claim to fame here. <laughs> you also had Thanks. a department at Columbia, don't you? Or is uh, that a secret? That's boring. <laughs> so here's how this whole thing runs. Um, we pick a food topic and we tell the history and science behind it. I mostly do the history and you mostly do the science, but we're not hard and fast to those rules. Um, I'm going to present first, and my topic this evening is uh, the history of female poisoners. <laughs> In the middle, we have a little bit we like to call story time, which um, is often topics that we just couldn't fit into our main presentation. I want to say that this month's story time is pretty lit to, to say what the it's kids solid. say. It's, it's really going to be something. I'm not even going to spill it to you, but I will say there are going to be samples. So you will all get to participate. And then, Soma, what are you talking about? Dicks. Just, it doesn't <laughs> stop. Aphrodisiacs, but dicks mostly. Yeah. <laughs> You know, I um, I wasn't sure if I should tell a room full of people this, but it seems pretty pertinent. Um, right before I came on stage today, I ovulated. So, <laughs> uh, no, anything else? Nope, just lefties popping. I can feel her in there, and I know that not like every woman can feel themselves ovulate, and but some of you can, and I think that most men are oblivious of the fact that it's just like every once in a while my ovaries just like. <laughs> <laughs> And I can feel her. She, she's, she still works apparently. So, <laughs> here we are. It seems, it seems right for this evening's pre-Valentine's theme. I can't believe you didn't have slides for that one. <laughs> it's like usually there's like the, the, you know, we warm you guys up and we have slides and you I just. I wasn't expecting it until I got here. We it's called put something together. It's called the middle schmertz. I don't know if you know that. That is the German term. Thank you <laughs> for the pain that you feel when your ovary pops out an egg. And two weeks from today, my period's going to start. So think of me <laughs> on February 11th. <laughs> How are you? I'm great. Uh, number one, who has a dishwasher? Okay, yeah, like seven people. Uh, I installed a dishwasher in my rental, not telling my landlord. It's amazing. <laughs> I, c I can cook anything now, and you'll hopefully taste some of the things that I cooked later tonight. Um, but it wouldn't be an MSG if I didn't start by talking about cats. So uh, the other day, so who here has ever been to Costco in uh, whatever, Sunset Park? Not enough people. So there's an off-ramp here from the BQE, and then there's a cat hiding right there and poking his little head out, and he refused to go into the trap. I was like, I'm going to trap you, and he's like not, not into it. Um, and me and my friend Jen went to Costco to do a little shopping. And on the way out, we were like, do you think cats like hot dogs? <laughs> and we decided that cats definitely don't like hot dogs, but then we bought a hot dog and tried it, and definitely <laughs> cats like hot dogs. Um, so this, this is the cat who's, yeah, right? He's cute. He's super anorexic, but he's a sweetheart. Um, and he'll, you know, watch he'll TV with up. you and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's gonna be real fatty. It'll be great. So yeah. if you need a cat that's super adorable that came out of a hole, <laughs> uh, he'll get fixed in like three weeks. So maybe next MSG, yeah. 
in a month. Oh, you, so you can follow Cat Republic for Soma's cat doings. Mm-hmm. Um, you can follow uh, I'm Four Pounds Flower and Soma's Danger Scarf. So you can follow us on Instagram primarily, but the other social meds. Master Social Gastronomy is also on Facebook where you can get updates too because we are now officially at Caveat the last Monday of every single month. Thank you, everybody. We're making them clap You're about a really lot of things. You're a really supportive crowd. I mean, I think it's their choice. So we're back in... <laughs> We're back at the end of February. Our topic in February is the uh, gastrointestinal tract. It's called What's What Goes In Must Come Out. <laughs> so I am more excited to talk about poops than Soma is, but if you like to talk about poops, um, my icebreaker question is when the last time did you shit yourself? So <laughs> I am soaked about this topic, and I assume other people will be too. Sarah. We'll see. Should we start? Get off the stage. Okay. <laughs> And now, welcome our first speaker of the evening, Sarah Lohman of Four Pounds Flower and a Book. Please give her a warm welcome. Thanks, Emma. Okay. Uh, okay, so um, uh, this is a topic that has become easier to talk about. I originally wrote this talk four years ago, and that was two years before my favorite murderer, so I feel much less weird on stage talking about really horrific murders, which is what we're going to do tonight. Um, And Okay, well, let me start by way of an entry point, like why I first got interested in specifically the idea of historical female poisoners. So I have this other project that I've been working on on or off, and it's this cookbook that was written in Ohio between 1870 and 1910. It starts in a woman's handwriting, and it's like baked good recipes, um, but then I found out that the woman who started the book died in childbirth in 1883. And what makes this book really intriguing is that after she passed away, her husband that was left behind with two small children picked up this book and started using it himself. And so there were recipes for beer and wine and medicine all in his handwriting. And some of these pages are fascinating in themselves because um, they are recipes from the end of the 19th century, so a lot of them include morphine in them uh, and laudanum because Yeah, that's going to fix you right up. So what makes this book even more intriguing is that this guy who wrote it was murdered in 1910 by his son-in-law in a murder that was so spectacularly gruesome and scandalous that it was covered. This happened in Akron, Ohio. It was covered in the New York Times. Now, okay, it gets even crazier. So, um, oh, here's the original New York Times article. Um, Yes, there was a child in the house who was the only survivor. Um, The son-in-law actually killed his father-in-law and his um, father-in-law's second wife, his mother-in-law. And this is the murderer, which I don't want to (laughs) stereotype. Crazy eyes. Exactly. Here's where it gets even crazier. We have this photo because he was one of the first two dozen people put to death by electric chair in Ohio, and there is a book in the Ohio Historical Society with portraits of all the people before they were electrocuted. So, ongoing. <laughs> Another interesting twist in this story was that he got all of his um, like visitation rights revoked because he was caught writing love letters to another prisoner in the Akron Canton Jail, a 16-year-old named Catherine Manns, who was imprisoned for poisoning her sister. Hard to know if the love letter thing is actually true, because this is an era of like sensationalism and, and yellow journalism, and um, murder was really fashionable. <laughs> like, 
like it is today where we're seeing this true crime movement, which honestly I also think has a lot to do with women wanting to reclaim stories of violence against women um, and bringing, getting rid of the shame of talking about those things. I think that has a lot to do with the modern movement. Uh, in the 19th century, just like to hear about dead people, I think. Um, so I don't know if that part of it is made up, but Catherine Manns' case was real. She had poisoned her sister with strychnine. I don't know what happened to her. She was too young to be tried as an adult, so it's likely she went into a workhouse if she was convicted. So reading through this story in this bigger context of the things I was learning about this cookbook and this family and this time period just made me connect some dots that I feel like I'd heard about a lot of poisoners in the 19th century, like too many, more than there should be, just that there were a lot of women poisoning people and or they were being focused on within the media of the time. So I began to dig a little bit deeper. And one of the reasons you heard a lot about female poisoners is one I've already mentioned, the idea of sensationalism, that true crime was um, really fascinating. One of the first cases that was reported on daily in the newspapers was a poisoning case, which we're going to look into a little bit more. And also, but more specifically, it's this idea of the female poisoner, which in the 19th century, women are taught and portrayed as being the weaker sex. And this is such a transgression of who we are supposed to be within that time. In fact, who we're supposed to be is someone who is supposed to get married. Our sole goal, or so we're taught in the 19th century, is to attract a husband. Attract being the key there, because we're also not supposed to be the aggressor. That's also unladylike. But it also, if we don't attract a husband, we, we are a failure. So I bring this up, too, because um, that plays a huge role in why women are poisoning people in the 19th century. <laughs> <laughs> and this is always, I feel like, a really delicate line to cross, uh, how to talk about these stories. But when I read these stories, to me it feels like women who I think are already having some extreme difficulties, whether that's mental health issue, whether that's being trapped in poverty, um, and simply not having a lot of choice. Um, in some of the stories we're going to look at, I mean, divorce was illegal in France in mo for most of the 19th century. Uh, in America, it was legal, but um, a man could leave his wife if she um, was an adulterer, but she couldn't leave him if he had slept with somebody else. It had to be combined with bestiality or incest or something equally bad. So it was considered sort of a crime for a woman to be unfaithful, but considered a part of a man's nature. It was also considered a part of a man's nature to be a criminal. They were the more excitable, the more evolved is the word sometimes used of the two sexes. Whereas for women, um, we weren't seen as being capable of being violent. So again, it's that transgression too. And in all the stories that I've read and some of the, the theories that I've read about, about it, they're usually categorized into one of three stages in a woman's life. The virgin, the married woman, or the spinster. And the sort of extreme social circumstances that particularly in the 19th century, not just historically as a whole, but in the 19th century, women were under a lot of societal and emotional stress within their lives to fulfill those roles. So let's talk about some female poisoners, and um, we'll get into some statistics. Uh, let, me, let me throw out a couple statistics here. Let me just say this first of all. 
90% of murders are committed by men today <laughs> and historically. Yeah, good job, I guess. <laughs> so we are talking about a very, very, very small percentage of murders and murderers uh, in the first place. Um, when women do murder, to this day, they do still tend to choose poison. About 40% of murders committed, no, excuse me, about 30% of murders committed by women are done by poison, while compared to only about 10% in the modern era um, are by gunshot. The biggest sort of statistical change, though, is that in the second half of the 19th century, seven out of every 10 poisoners was a woman. Um, and today, only four out of every 10 poisoners is a woman. So women are poisoning less. We'll talk more about why a little bit later on. And I also should say that the typical the reason why women use poison is because it doesn't require physical strength. Um, women are often in the roles of caretaker, so they have access to food. So they are in charge of the welfare of others, and then they're using that to poison somebody. Um, but it is a it's not a crime of passion. You have to think about it. You have to plan a poisoning. So it's also quite different in that way than picking up a gun. So one of the earliest um, hangings in America was the hanging of Sarah Clark. So this is actually the only one that's pre-19th century. This took place in 1798. Sarah Clark was a teenager living in eastern Pennsylvania, and she was sweet on a boy. His name was Dan Carruthers. Uh, no, excuse me, his name was Dan Johnson. She was living in, well, the Carruthers are coming up. She was living in the Johnson household, um, and Dan was more into Ann Carruthers, uh, another teenage girl, and he was giving her all of his attentions. Sarah Clark was unhappy about this, so she decides she's going to poison Ann Carruthers. Not good, okay? <laughs> I just want to preference that this is not a good thing to do. So she gets a job as a servant in the Carruthers household and bides her time for an opportunity when she can poison um, the woman that she is jealous of. But time passes and the right opportunity doesn't arrive, so she ends up dropping poison, I believe it was arsenic, we'll get into different poisons later, into what is called leaven. So it's essentially a sponge, like yeasted, um, you're going to make bread out of this, which then the whole family eats. And the whole family gets sick, and she doesn't end up killing the woman she wants to kill. She ends up killing Mr. and Mrs. Carruthers. They're the ones that die. So she is tried and hanged, and she's one of the earliest hangings in America, especially for poisoning. Um, and again, not to make excuses for her, but this is sort of, again, it's that pre-marriage, it's the virginal one. Her job is to attract a husband. This is her chance to do so, but she has, she has competition. So she's going to take out the competition. Is that a sane train of thought? No, it is probably not a sane train of thought. But it's one that might come out of incredible social pressure of fulfilling your role as a woman. When we get to Marie Lafarge, who was doing exactly that. So this is actually a French case. Um, Marie Lafarge is married in 1840. Um, her husband was broke, but he realized, or at least he thought, that the best way out of his in incredible debt was to marry well. So he lives in the Paris countryside. He lives in a ruined monastery of all places. His father had bought the land hoping to repurpose it. It didn't work out. He had owned an iron foundry that went bankrupt. He had no money, but he essentially hires a, marri a marriage broker and places himself as this like very nouveau riche, like new money rich guy. And so he lands a marriage with Marie Laforge. She doesn't really like him. Um, he 
finds him sort of gruff and common were the words that she used. And, but her dad says, you know what, he's got a lot of money, you're going to be taken care of. Again, this is her fulfilling her duty, so she agrees. They get married, and she shows up on this patch of land with an abandoned, crumbling monastery in it that she's going to live in. This is like the plot of, I feel like, many British, yeah, romance novels. And like she shows up, this is not what is promised. He is not who he is promised, that he's going to use her money to pay off his debts. So almost right away, she locks herself in her bedroom, and she writes him letters begging him to release her from this marriage because it is not what is promised. Again, at this time period, France is very conservative Catholic, and divorce is not legal. It has been illegal since 1819, won't become legal again since the 1880s. She's essentially asking for a dissolution of the marriage that has not been consummated. But she has to ask him because as a woman in any of these European and American countries, she has no right to divorce. Um, he says that no, he's not going to dissolve the marriage, but that... With the appropriate amount of Victorian euphemism, he says, but don't worry, I won't have sex with you until I have more money and the estate is in a better place. He calls it his marital rights. So he goes to Paris. He's trying to find some people that will loan him money to build his estate back up. This is when if within six months of their marriage. Um, she starts, sh things seem to be better. She tells her friends everything is great. She's writing him love letters, and on Christmas, she sends him a Christmas cake that she made and says, at midnight, you eat a piece of cake, and I'll eat a piece of cake, and we'll be joined by our love. Well, he eats a piece of cake, and he immediately starts throwing up. <laughs> and this is the 19th century, so, you know, it can be food poisoning. His symptoms seem like cholera. So he just threw the cake away, thinking that it had spoiled in transit. He still didn't feel well, so he comes home soon after. She puts him to bed. She takes care of him, but every time she feeds him something, every time she gives him something to drink, he gets sick. He gets worse and worse and worse until eventually he dies. Some of his family members then, you know, turn her in, um, and she goes on trial and is convicted for poisoning. Um, she spends 12 years. She, she is originally convicted, um, sentenced to hanging, but again, because of her role as a woman, often the sentences were commuted. So she actually went to an insane asylum for 12 years um, and then was pardoned but died just a few months later of tuberculosis. Um, this case is credited for pushing uh, the legalization of divorce in France because her defense was this, was, this marriage was not who it was supposed to be, this man was cruel to me, this man threatened me, this man stole my money, and I had no other way of getting out of this marriage except to do this. The jury didn't accept that as an okay reason to poison somebody and kill them. However, within 25 years is when we see divorce re-legalized. And it's cases like these that keep getting brought up again and again and again, because I guess men will allow you to divorce them if they're afraid of getting poisoned. <laughs> A more extreme version of this is an American story, Lydia Sherman. So Lydia Sherman was married when she was 17 to an older man. Over the next seven years, they have six children together. So this is the eight, this, that does suck. <laughs> yes, because it's the 1870s and we're on the edge of Comstock laws, which are going to make birth control, physical birth control illegal. Um, but other than that, if you are in the 19th century and you are a woman, you don't have sex education. So you really don't know how to not get pregnant. And then I think the thing that people might forget in the 21st century, or maybe you don't, is that it takes two to tango. 
So in the 19th century, if you don't want to have any more kids, but your husband does, you both have to agree for you not to get pregnant. Because if you're married, it doesn't count as rape. If you're married, this is considered your womanly duty. And especially if you're 17 and your husband is much older, well, you have six kids within seven years. When she's 23, her husband mysteriously dies. But the real tragic part about it is this is also the 19th century, so there's no such thing as social welfare. She now has a dead husband and um, six young children. She goes to the government. The kids go to an orphanage because they're automatically considered an orphan now that their father has passed away. So the only government help you can get is to have your children take away from you. And if you want to keep your children and try to support them, as a woman, one of the few careers that you can turn to at this time is prostitution. That happened a lot in New York City. They were called occasional prostitutes. You could find them down on Allen Street. Now you know. And these were often your neighbors or even your siblings or cousins trying to make ends meet essentially until they got married again and had someone else to take care of their kids. That's the decision you made to not lose your children. Lydia Sherman made a less great decision um, in that she, all six of her kids died over the next two years. She marries again. This time to a much older man, a man in his 70s who was fairly wealthy. She came on as a caretaker, then they got married, and by all accounts, including her own, she was actually quite happy and loved him a lot, and he just died because he was old. He died like in his late 80s. After she passes away, though, there was only a small inheritance, and so she gets married again. That husband already had two kids, um, and within two years, those two children die, and then um, the husband himself dies within the third year, too. This is titled, Mrs. Mr. Sherman Drinks the Death Potion Prepared by His Wife. Um, according to this, she had mixed poison within his brandy and killed him, too. So after this last death, she did go to trial and also was convicted, ended up going into, again, an insane asylum. She actually wrote and profited on a book. She became known um, as the Poison Fiend. And after she's convicted, there is a confession where she says, yes, I killed my first husband, but after he lost his job, he started beating me. And then I didn't know what to do to stop him from beating me. And then I didn't know what to do when I had six kids and I had no one to turn to. Move to you in a second, Christine Evans. Um, and then second husband, she's like, yeah, I loved him. Um, third husband, she said he would desert me for long periods of time and then come back and collect any money that I'd earned which again was uh, legally allowed in America. That was one of the husband's rights was to the women's money, even if he wasn't living there. So she, I don't know, I can't say that that justifies this all, but she's talking about issues that are very real to every woman in the 19th century too. Um, the one last one we're gonna talk about is Christi Christina Edmonds. And so we had our virgin, we had our married women, she's the spinster quote-unquote. At 42, she has never married. Um, this is a British case. And she falls in love with her doctor. Uh, he's a little bit younger, and they develop a flirtation. And he claimed later on that there was never anything physical to it, but their letters are pretty... They were probably doing it, to be honest. <laughs> it's pretty, pretty, like, intimate letters they were writing back and forth. She hasn't been married. She hasn't fulfilled this thing that she's been told her entire life she needs to do to be a successful woman. That is her whole reason for being. And in her mind at this point, um, she sees the only thing standing in her way of finally achieving this goal is the doctor's wife. 
So she shows up at the wife's house and playfully puts a piece of chocolate in her mouth during the visit, during the wife, in the wife's mouth. Um, and that chocolate was laced with strychnine. So the wife immediately takes ill. She survives, but at that point, the doctor cuts off all contact with her. And so her main priority is to reconnect with this man uh, and to prove that she's innocent and that she should be loved. So um, she wants to be, she wants the blame taken off of her. So she sends, um, she hires a boy to go buy a bunch of chocolates from the same chocolate store. She laces them with strychnine and then returns them herself saying these are the wrong kinds of chocolate. So then people who are buying, th then they resell them because it's the 19th century and they can do things like that. Um, and then people start buying these tainted chocolates and start getting sick. And as a result of this, a boy, a 12-year-old boy, dies. So at first, no one sus suspects her. In fact, she is actually part of an inquest when she testifies and said, I got sick and I told them there was an issue and the police weren't listening. They're idiots. But it eventually comes out um, because when you buy poison in this time, arsenic and strychnine, if you're buying it from a druggist, you have to sign it out in a ledger and say that you buy it because people were afraid of poisonings. And so when there was a call by the police, if anyone had bought poison from a local store, her name was in the ledger and she was eventually brought in and arrested. Um, she's known as the chocolate cream killer. <laughs> um, and again, it's another horrific thing, but when you look at how spinsters were treated at this time, unmarried women, they're treated with ridicule that they both couldn't complete the one task that they should complete, but if they should try to when they are past their prime, that's also laughable. So the only thing you could do as a woman in this time that was right was, again, attract a husband. Not go find a husband. Let one come to you. And if they didn't, and sometimes even if they did, your life was pretty miserable and you had no real freedom or um, legal recourse. Now, what were the poisons that women were using in this time? So most of these were everyday poisons. Um, cyanide was a pretty common one early on. Cyanide is literally everywhere. We actually ingest cyanide pretty commonly because it's found in a lot of um, fruit pits. These you shouldn't eat fruit pits because there's poison inside, just so you know. <laughs> um, but especially like stone fruits, every pit has a little bit of cyanide inside. But also strawberry seeds have trace amounts of cyanide too. Um, you don't think you can overdose on strawberries? Don't quote me on that, <laughs> but probably <laughs> not. But the main source of cyanide comes from bitter almonds, which is also what we use to make um, almond flavoring. Now, in the contemporary, okay, so here's how this works. Brief biology lesson. When plants have defense chemicals, those are chemicals uh, that often are compounds, where there are two parts of it stored in different parts of the leaf or this nut or whatever it is. So when an animal is crunching it, eating it, and crushing those cell walls, two compounds come together, form a third compound, and that one is somehow, well, garlic is a good example. A garlic clove doesn't actually smell or taste like anything until those cell walls are broken, and then it releases a chemical that most animals find repulsive, but we humans find delicious. <laughs> Sorry, garlic, you messed up. Bitter almonds, though, they don't want anybody eating those seeds because th these will kill you. The compounds come together and create cyanide, which is a deadly, deadly poison. Now we can sort of crush them and then wash them, and any of those compounds, those protective compounds, they have very, very short lives that they, they fade away after a couple minutes. Um, so it's easy to sort of activate it and then wash it away. Strychnine was a super accessible one in the 19th century. Um, it had fairly recently been isolated 
from this plant. Um, it's in the seeds of this fruit, and it was most commonly used in the 19th century and still is used today as a rat poison. So it was something that you bought to kill um, animals that were considered nuisances. Rats and mice, sometimes dogs and cats too, but it was available at your local drugstore. Um, this was very, very bitter. Um, so it is, when it was used to poison people, it was most often put in coffee because you couldn't taste the bitter flavor. Um, and what happens is it creates, it, um, it suffocates your cells. It allows your cells to stop absorbing oxygen, so you actually have a molecular asphyxiation and die. Um, it is mostly painless, though. Um, today, uh, rat poisons have to include dyes and other chemicals so that their appearance can be seen if it's added to something like coffee. There was a fairly recent case in the past 10 years where a man, quote unquote, added a little bit of rat poison to his wife's coffee. This is real transcripts, and the judge said, you did what? And he said, I added a little bit of rat poison to my wife's coffee. But she didn't drink it because it turned the coffee green and greasy looking. So that's sort of the protections that we have in place now. Kind of crazily, um, strychnine is related to caffeine. So in very small doses, it's a stimulant. So in the 19th century, it was sold as rat poison, but also as a nerve tonic. And it was especially popular among students studying for finals. <laughs> so it's easy to get. Another one that's super easy to get is arsenic. Um, arsenic is actually an element, which I think is sort of fascinating. Um, it tastes slightly sweet, so it would often be added to things like tea and hot chocolate that were already sweet, so you couldn't detect it. Um, it creates um, severe muscle spasms and muscle convulsions to the point where your muscles are so tense and spasming that you can no longer breathe, so you asphyxiate. It is not a calm death. It is a something you do to someone you really, really don't like. But it was extremely accessible in the 19th century because it was a very popular dye. Um, it was a fashionable dye, um, particularly for paint, wallpaper, and clothing. So this is a woman wearing an arsenic green dress sitting in an arsenic green room. Yes, women died of, wearing <laughs> of sitting in arsenic green rooms wearing arsenic green dresses, especially because it was a color often used to dye silk for like evening dances, and then you would sweat, and the arsenic would be absorbed through your skin that way. Um, but if you thought that wasn't enough arsenic in your life, you can also get it as a face wash <laughs> because arsenic constricts the blood vessels. So in the, in the Victorian era, it was very popular to have a very, very pale white face. So there were all these soaps and face washes for women to constrict the blood vessels of their face. This is what the patriarchy looks like, if you didn't know. <laughs> So this is extremely accessible to women. It's in their clothes. It's on flypaper. They're buying it as makeup. So it's very, very, very easy to get. I mentioned that already, but if you want to poison someone with arsenic, put it in cocoa. Don't, though. <laughs> um, morphine, again, is really common in medicines, so it's really easy to administer overdoses. And also cocaine is a really common medicine in the 19th century. This is before we have we don't have controlled substances. That, does, that concept doesn't exist until the early 20th century. So all these are pretty easily accessible. So kind of coming to the, back to the idea of why women poisoners. So we've seen a drop in poisoning. And honestly, sociologists look at that historically. Uh, uh, sociologists today look at that historically and say, well, poisonings began to drop off when women could get divorced. 
and when women had more social um, mobility and when they had more ability to be independent. So again, it's you don't kill anybody. <laughs> That's not <laughs> what I want to support here. However, it's believed now that the reason there were so many female poisoners in the 19th century is because it was the time when we were the most constricted as far as social power and freedom and independence. It's the time we were the most oppressed. So for some women, this is the one out they felt they had from bad situations. One story that I didn't mention, it, it for some reason really struck me. It's something that I just read yesterday, so it's not my presentation. But it was about a woman who had sex with a boy before she got married. And it wasn't the boy that her father decided that she should get engaged to. So she was like, well, I have to break this off with you. And then he threatened to release the, their love letters talking about their physical love making. And so she killed him. Should she kill him? No. But she was so terrified because her life was going to be ruined because she wanted to have sex. And that sucks. That's a really depressing world for someone to live in. So, <laughs> in conclusion, <laughs> um, poison is still the weapon of choice for women. We do it a lot less, and we do it because we have social freedom. And I hate to think of the mental state where someone felt so backed into the wall to do something like this. Um, That's all for now. <laughs> Thank you. So this is story time. So um, it's a very exciting, sensory-filled story time. Uh, since you just heard me talk a lot, this is, uh, you're going to hear Soma talk. What you got to say, Soma? What do I have to say? Yeah. Like, let's start? Yeah. What okay. are we talking about? All right. Well, since the beginning of time, Mankind, specifically men, have gone out into the world and we've looked at animals and we've been like, oh yeah, <laughs> boy, boy, do we have a hard on for those animals. Um, and if there's one thing that could make us even more libidinous and sexually fierce, it's just like parts of those animals that kind of resemble our dick. So things like horns, antlers, actual dicks. Um, yeah, just an anything works. Um, so me and Sarah first gave this talk in like 2014, yeah, 15, 15 150 yeah. years ago mm -hmm. more or less. And I go on the internet and I find not three penis liquor, but some like Chinese stock photography of what is said to be three penis liquor. And I'm just like, I want to get this. Uh, but you can't find it. It's impossible. I tried. This makes you virile? Oh, yeah. It's got uh, deer dick, and it's got dog dick, and <laughs> seal dick as well. So <laughs> it's just all, all possible biomes. Okay. Um, so. Didn't find it. I didn't find it. So now um, you're not but virile. But still, I know. I wasn't virile. It was terrible. And I just, I, I took to heart some words that Sarah said to me once, which was, hey, Soma, eat a dick. <laughs> and so I thought, I, I guess I need to do this. I need to, f you know, if I can't rely on three penis liquor, I have to find something else. And so I did a bunch of research, uh, and I found a dish called cow cod soup. 
Uh, now, cowcod just means like beef penis. Uh, and it's a Jamaican dish, and you have it on Friday and Saturday nights when you're ready to party. And I thought, maybe I can find this. And I go and I find a New York Times article from 1994 <laughs> that's about going to Flatbush and finding this dish. And I'm like, all right, great. Menupages.com, do a little search, find a ton of places that supposedly have cow cod on the menu. You can get that one on Seamless. Yeah, um, <laughs> except you can't. So what ended up happening was I was wandering around in sleeting rain, going from restaurant to restaurant, basically being like, hello, do you have cow cod soup? And then some of them were like, what? And I was like, it's the one with the... And they're like, <laughs> they're like, no, what are you talking about? Like, we have never heard of that. And I'm like, but something from 1994 says that I could find it here. So don't fake news I don't know so this was very sad and I searched and I searched uh, and I couldn't find anything but then but then I went on the internet and RIP 10% of BuzzFeed but uh, I found a post called 10 penises people actually eat <laughs> And this was one of them, and I was like, holy shit, I recognize this label, and I recognize this address, and it is the Chinese grocery store that is under the Manhattan Bridge. And so I rushed there, and I'm like, gonna buy an ox penis, totally not there. Went to a ton of other places, totally couldn't find ox penis. It was like, <sighs> that it's year like was a, a bad like year. It was like I know, but <laughs> I don't know. I've never seen it in action, so... <laughs> Uh, and I was just, I was so excited about all the things I was going to be able to do to it. I found this, like, it's beautiful. It's star anise, but it's virile star anise. Like, love it. So, okay, couldn't make that happen. So I couldn't prepare, <laughs> I couldn't prepare a dick of my own. Um, <laughs> and I couldn't, but, but don't get too sad because there's a restaurant, like, down the street from here uh, called Marks, Kenko. Right? Yeah, it's on yeah. St. Mark's. Um, and it's wonderful and it has beer and it has food and it's, you know, it's a normal, cool restaurant. Uh, and on the menu, it says, in the event that a customer has too much to drink and vomits outside of the restroom, we will be forced to charge that customer $20 for the cleaning up and inconvenience to our other customers. Worth it. Yeah, right. Yeah. And so I'm <laughs> like, okay, okay. Um, so they have two special things on their menu. Number one is a penis and number two is a testicles. So really just covering all my bases. <laughs> so I started with turkey testicles. Who here has ever had gushers? <laughs> <laughs> so imagine imagine what, what appears to be a shrimp. It's a shrimp that's a little bit bigger than a normal shrimp and it doesn't have the tail on it and you're like, oh, it's better than a shrimp. And you start to bite into it and suddenly your mouth is full of cottage cheese. <laughs> I was just talking about Rocky Mountain Oysters where they're like cut up into pieces and deep fried and that's for babies. <laughs> this, so there were four and I ate like half of one. It was disgusting. It was horrific. Um, don't, don't eat those. And I thought, I was like, I might puke. This is so disgusting. But I haven't had too much to drink. So that will they still charge me $20? Fair. Fair. You right? can argue. So I wasn't yeah. sure where the line was. It was gross. Uh, and then the other thing they had on the menu was ox whip. 
uh, which, you know, that's a penis. Uh, and it just looks like a real fucked up hot dog. And it kind of basically, it was like a sausage. You know, like it wasn't the best food I've ever had in my life. How much did you eat? A half of it. Were you virile? Is that too personal a question? Uh, I don't think I was. <laughs> I think I was. So after you eat this stuff, you're just like, I want to die. <laughs> and, and normally. Wait, is it supposed to be instant or is it like a long-term virile uh, situation? I think you that know. in this case, it didn't matter because I was so unhappy about this turkey testicles. <laughs> like that, that ruined my life forever probably. Uh, but it came with like sauerkraut and mustard and it's just like eating a hot dog. It's fine. But then I went outside. Here's the worst part of all of it. Uh, who's been to Kenka? Who's been anywhere where you get to make um, cotton candy? Yeah, so I tried to make cotton candy and I really <laughs> failed. And it was like, it was terrible. It was terrible, right? <sighs> so that was the end of my story. But, so after I gave this talk the first time, like three weeks later, I started dating a vegan. And then we went to Flushing, and then I saw some ox dick there. And I was like, I have to buy this. Is it going to be great? And she's like, eh. And I was like, okay, I'm not. But this weekend, <laughs> I went to Flushing, even though, like, no trains were running. And I bought a really nice plate with a cute cat on it, right? So cute. And then I bought some, <laughs> some beef pizzle. So the world of, of consuming dicks is just like, you gotta g know all the vocabulary. Like every possible word just means a dick. It's fine. So I bought this guy, I paid $12 for this shit? God damn it, okay, it's fine. I feel, just because I follow you on Instagram, like I'm, oh God, I just don't feel good about my life right now and what's gonna happen. It was a really exciting time the past three days for Instagram and me. So, cow cod soup, found some recipes for it. You, you take thyme, and you take literally every root vegetable that exists, some like scotch bonnet peppers, and then a bunch of rum, because you definitely need rum. <laughs> and like, there aren't very good recipes for how to like, cut up a cow dick, unfortunately, on the internet. So I was really struggling, I was really struggling hard today. Because, like, there's skin on the outside of it, and you don't want that skin. So it was like, I'm really unpracticed at circumcision. <laughs> but I think now, I think now I got it down. So here's what happens. I tried and I tried and I tried. Did you have your safe search on when you it's were looking for yeah, recipes? Yeah, no, I think actually having safe search off was way worse. Uh -huh. So... I kept trying to cut it off, and, and it just kept being more skin and more skin. And then I found some other recipes, and they're like, what you have to do is you have to, like, blanch it first. And so you just throw a bunch of boiling water on all of that dick, <laughs> <laughs> and you let it sit for about a minute. And then you, you pull it off, and it looks like this. And my dick can't do that. <laughs> But that's why, you know, cows are in charge. Um, <laughs> and then you skin it, and you're supposed to cut it through the middle and remove the urethra, but I was like, can't really figure that shit out, so it's <laughs> fine. Because other people didn't do it. I watched a man on YouTube, and he didn't cut anything out of the middle. It's fine. So I asked, I asked the internet, did I do this right? <laughs> and literally everyone said no, except my 16-year-old sister. So... <laughs> 
I don't know what they're learning these days, but. <laughs> <laughs> now, then you let it sit in some water for about half an hour to kind of like leach out the fact that it's a dick. <laughs> uh, and then I went to the vet for three hours for that cat and this other cat named Meatloaf. He's adorable, but he got adopted. So like everything was terrible because I was like, I gotta get home today and cook that dick. <laughs> but <laughs> so eventually we were released from the vet. Everything was fine. Um, and so I had to cook things in two parts. I had to cook the stew with all the time and all of that. And then I had to use my Instant Pot <laughs> for this dick. Because you have to cook this for like 10 hours in order for it to become something that Sarah will eat. And so <laughs> I put it on for like 20, 25 minutes, you know, a little bit of natural release, but then I vent it. <laughs> and then this is what's hiding inside of the pot. So I don't have pictures of this part, but then I, I slice that up and then I put it into this soup. And then I think, you know, you should probably fry some of this up too so it's not like just nice raw, <laughs> you know, the actual flavor. Um, and so I cut it up into tiny pieces because I don't want just me and Sarah to be the only ones eating this. And then I cook it and it's like popcorn. <laughs> and it like, it shot, it shot all over my kitchen. So are my cats having fun right now? Maybe, <laughs> maybe. Um, so uh, I knew this was coming from I yesterday. Have, I have a bunch of stew here. I just do such nice things for you. And you bring me, well, you, you bring me dicks, but not the dicks that I want. smell great, but it doesn't smell bad. It just smells like mediocre soup, <laughs> to be honest. It's a real crack soup. That's all it is. <laughs> Nothing warm? weird about it at all. It is warm. Yeah. No, that's where I drew a line. I said that I wasn't going to eat congealed dick soup. I <laughs> bought this. I bought this, so. So should we, sh should we throw back the whole thing, or should we go for our, an individual piece of dick? Get the flavor? I mean, there's two pieces of dick in here, so I can do both. Okay. <laughs> okay, so on the count of three, penis piece. Ready? Hold on. Don't worry, the whole thermos is full, so yeah. there's plenty for you all. We got samples. Uh, cheers, buddy. It tastes like a dumpling. It has the texture of a dumpling. Like it's kind of that chewy, like, gnocchi kind of feel, like a penis gnocchi, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, yeah. let's do this whole thing. Oh, I can't eat all that. You're better at eating food on stage. Um, so <laughs> next up. <laughs> it Sarah doesn't, it needs salt. <laughs> I it's kind of greasy, the whole thing. Um, yeah, because I, I fried some stuff in the beginning. Yeah, it's it not doesn't my shining all statement. Right, it doesn't, the whole soup as a whole doesn't really taste good, but like <laughs> the texture of the, the penis. Fault. No, it's not the dick's <laughs> fault, but the dick food. isn't helping either. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm so excited that I'm so virile right now. I'm totally going to, yeah, right? I... Tonight's the night. I'm going to get knocked up. 
everything is, is coming together for that moment. I'll name them after you, Soma. <laughs> or her. Is this it? Are you done torturing me now? Is there more? Did you bring a turkey testicle? No, that's just terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I have standards. Who's going to eat some dick soup? Oh my god, I hear people peer pressuring each other. It's the most <laughs> beautiful sound. <laughs> Amazing. Well, don't worry too much, because I actually have something to follow the dick soup, because I wanted to do something nice for you. <laughs> You're welcome. And nice for you, Soma, too. So I already did. Uh, so um, I brought you all samples of ruby chocolate. Has anyone heard of ruby chocolate before by a woo? Okay, just a few of you. So ruby chocolate has been advertised as the first new type of chocolate in 100 years or something like that. Um, the company that creates it, a Belgian company, claims that it is, all right, so there's milk, dark, white, and now ruby chocolate. And their press release, this was released at a trade show in Shanghai in 2017, and they said that it's made from ruby cacao, and it is not dyed, and it is not flavored, it is all natural. Now, um, the process of this is a trade secret, but um, oh that's, I, should, I guess I should start here. But there's been a little bit of like, so they have a patent on a red cacao uh, that was patented in 2009. And uh, from that patent, it gives a little bit of some hints as to what ruby chocolate actually is. Ruby cacao pods are not a new variety of cacao, what chocolate is made from. They're just the cacao pods that they pick to make chocolate out of. That's like if I say these are Sarah's apples because of the apples I make pie out of, but I didn't invent them or discover them. They're just the apples I make pie out of. So they're calling these ruby cacao pods, but they're just regular cacao pods. Now, when a, a cacao bean, all right, so we've got like the potter on the outside, there's actually fruit in the middle, and then the seed is what we make chocolate out of. And traditionally, when the pod is harvested, that middle is scooped out and put into piles, and it's fermented for a couple days. And during the fermentation process, that's when the chemical compounds develop that create the flavors we know of as chocolate. Um, but when they're unfermented, they have a slightly red tone to them. So what has been theorized by people who are experts and also from looking at this patent from 2009 is that ruby chocolate is essentially a white chocolate that has unfermented ground cacao added to it to give it that bright pink color. Um, there's been a lot of debate on whether or not this can be considered chocolate because up until this point, chocolate is traditionally fermented and that has been an important part of the process for something to be called chocolate. So there's debate around that and a lot of people, um, when they were thinking about this originally, talk experts were like, I can't imagine that would be good because they haven't gone through the proper steps to mature the flavor of chocolate. So the company that created this, they're not a uh, consumer brand of chocolate, so they not don't do direct sales, they sell to chocolate makers. So when this was introduced in 2017, it took a little bit of time to actually get to the market because it had to be bought by another chocolate maker and then mass produced. Um, and actually the first company that licensed Ruby Chocolate was Nestle. And the first product to be uh, released that used it were Kit Kats in Japan. Now you may or may not know that Kit Kats in Japan are huge. They're a really big deal over there, in part because the phrase Kit Kat in Japanese means it's like congratulations or good luck, I think. 
Um, and it's a traditional gift given to students around exam time to sort of wish them well. So there's that fortuitous thing in that the language it has this double meaning, but there's also hundreds of crazy flavors of Kit Kats in Japan. It's become this whole like breakaway culture where you can get yuzu and wasabi and like uh, regional flavors. I've had like a creme brulee one you had to put in the toaster oven. It's just a fun thing. Also, that's a big gift-giving culture. So um, Kit Kat releases very, very fancy packages um, as so that they look like appropriately beautiful gifts. So this was the right type of market, I think a smart move to release something new and unique into. Um, but so this was released about a year ago. And then over the summer, a couple British chocolate makers, uh, they had exclusive rights for six months to Ruby Chocolate as part of this deal. But then by the summer, a couple British chocolate makers um, were able to license and acquire Ruby Chocolate and started producing it. And luckily, when I was Googling this on Friday, I found a place in the Chelsea market where you could actually buy it. So I have resisted this whole weekend from trying this because I wanted to give it a whirl live on stage. The brand is called Prestat. Uh, it's a British brand of chocolate, uh, and I have lots of little pieces for everybody to try. I should be mean and be like, you don't get to try it unless you eat the dick soup. <laughs> but I won't. Um, and it, oh, it is a rather, it's like raspberry colored. It's actually quite, by the photos I thought it was going to be a little bit more pale, but it's actually quite colorful and vivacious. So when you're tasting chocolate and really trying to taste it, you're supposed to put it in your mouth, but really not chew, just like let it melt, like communion. Not melting fast enough. <laughs> My first impression too was like this is just white chocolate, and it does have a pretty high proportion of um, it has sugar, cocoa butter, skimmed milk powder, whole milk powder, cocoa mass, soy lecithin, citric acid, and natural vanilla flavorings. There's also other flavorings in there too. Online, they called it smooth and fruity, and I would say it's both of those things. It is a little bit fruity, but that could also just be the citric acid. <laughs> Sounds like a scam. Yeah. Well, that's what a lot of people have been calling it, honestly. That it's essentially, like a, it's not necessarily a scam, but just like a marketing thing. And maybe not necessarily worthy being called a new type of chocolate. Well, it is much better than that fried dick you just served me. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that. Um, and we, I have samples of it, and I'm going to pass them out on this side of the stage. I'll have to grab my food service gloves. I'll be back in a moment. And, uh, but I would recommend eating the dick first and then coming for the <laughs> chocolate, maybe this direction. Come on up and get these samples, and then Soma's going to talk. So, break. Go. <laughs> All right. Apparently, well, how was it? Amazing. Terrible. Okay. So once upon a time, uh, I read a thing by Fuchsia Dunlop, who does a bunch of like Chinese cooking, and she's like, people in America, or I guess people in the West, uh, their one like hang up about food is texture, and like we get real like uh, about texture, and so now every time a food has like a fucked up texture and I don't want to eat it, I'm just like, no, power through this. Pa you can be better than this. You are better than this. But it's always a terrible idea, so I don't know. So get, get excited, get ready. We're going to talk about aphrodisiacs. So when you have aphrodisiacs, what is an aphrodisiac? There are two major things that an aphrodisiac will do. Uh, number one, it will increase your libido, so it will make you want to have sex more. 
Uh, and the other one is it will improve your performance. It'll make you better <laughs> at the act of having sex. Get ready, because this one is just, it comes back. Uh, and so you're like, okay, that makes sense. Well, what kinds of things are aphrodisiacs? And I said, well, that's why I'm up here. So if you are getting something, if you spend a lot of time on the internet researching aphrodisiacs, there are three major categories. Number one, things that are really expensive. Um, because anything that's expensive, I guess, just makes you real virile. Uh, number two, things that kind of change your perception or change the way that you interact with the world. So even something like alcohol, uh, anything that kind of like fucks with the brain a little bit. And then my favorite and yours, things that look like dicks. <laughs> or things that look like, like anything that could possibly be construed to having anything to do with the human body. You're like, yes, sell it. We're there. It's great. And so we're going to go back, back, back in time for my favorite example of something that resembles the human body that is an aphrodisiac. So we're going back to ancient Egypt. And so you're King Tut, and you're like, I want a bone, but I don't know. Maybe I'm not really feeling it. I want to increase my libido. And everyone in Egypt is like, you know what you need is some lettuce. <laughs> wild lettuce will make you go wild. And that was just like what the ancient Egyptians were all about. Like you have some lettuce <laughs> and you're just re you're ready to go. Um, and the reason is because if you have a, a, a wild lettuce plant and you cut it or you wound it is the way they talk about it, a, a sap comes out um, that's like a, a thick, sticky, white sap coming out of a pole. And for some reason, people are like, oh, that's something like the human body. We love it. And so, you know, it's also the exciting thing about this is it's called uh, lactarium, and it's a mild uh, opiate. So it is actually something that will mess with the way that you experience the world, along with the fact that it's like a cum plant. So <laughs> every, everything is great about it if you're an Egyptian. Um, whereas once you get up to the Greeks, they're like, no, wild lettuce is an anti-aphrodisiac, but they didn't want you to eat too much of it. Because um, like, if you ate too much, then you would never want a bone. And they're like, but we really like lettuce, because <laughs> someone said that once. Um, and so they're the ones who invented baby spring mix because they would take <laughs> arugula, which they thought arugula was really libidinous and really like a sexy food. And they're like, well, if we take like 50% lettuce and then 50% Arugula, you mix them together, you'll just be where you started and it'll be fine. <laughs> you won't get too excited, you can still write some plays, do some politics, everything will be okay. So it's great, but like, I don't know, now it's what I think whenever I eat that. Uh, but something that's a little bit more normal is probably oysters. Um, why are oysters an aphrodisiac? Who knows, <laughs> who knows? I don't know, yeah. Looks looks like a, a lady's bathing suit part. So yeah, <laughs> it's not just things that look like dicks. It's equal opportunity. Actually, it's 99% of the time things that look like dicks. But every once in a while, they'll throw a bone, and it'll be like something that comes out of a lady. Um, now, Casanova, sexiest guy ever, like fucked half the world. Um, he loved oysters. He ate 50 oysters a day. And you're like, huh, he ate 50 oysters a day, so that must mean that oysters make you really like a sexy sex sex. Um, <laughs> but the, his secret was not eating oysters, it was how he ate oysters. So you go to a lady and you're like, lady, 
I really want to eat an oyster. You really want to eat an oyster. Wouldn't it be good if we ate oysters together by passing oysters back and forth between our mouths? So I think he was cheating a little bit because it presumes a little bit of intimacy with the person who you're sucking oyster face with. <laughs> but it worked for him, so I don't know. Try this next time, dollar oysters. <laughs> It'll be great. But people think that oysters actually are aphrodisiacs, like chemically, and there are a few reasons why. So number one reason why, we have the dopamine hypothesis. Um, so people say dopamine is like the happiness chemical, but it's not really the happiness chemical, it's more of the like, I'm gonna get addicted to something chemical. So <laughs> there are different compounds that are inside of oysters that are precursors to dopamine, so the idea is that if you uh, eat more oysters, you will have more of these chemicals, so you will have more dopamine, so it'll be easier for you to engage in like addictive sexual behaviors, because why not? Um, it's probably not true. Uh, and then, so there's another guy, uh, Dr. George Fisher, the internet ate this up when he published it, and everyone's like, oh man, there was a study, oysters are, are an aphrodisiac, because of blah, 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 this stuff, don't have time to go into it, but here's the thing. Anyone here ever read like a science, like a pop science article somewhere on the internet? Yeah, right? Who here's actually gone and read a study based on one of those? Yeah, don't ever do it because you'll be so sad about the state of the world. <laughs> so, okay, uh, what comes out of it is oysters are an aphrodisiac, underlined a hundred times. Um, what he did was, uh, so in theory, they say he fed oysters to rats and testosterone and progesterone increased. Um, so they would have more sexual activity. But actually, he didn't even feed them oysters, he fed them mussels. He's like, bivalves, they're all the same, right? <laughs> like, rats and mice, they're just like people, right? And the news is like, definitely all of that is true. Oysters are an aphrodisiac, so <laughs> science. Um, and then zinc, so oysters are high in zinc, and in theory, zinc is good for sexual performance. It actually is good for sexual performance, but only if you have low levels of zinc. So if you're like really like zinc low, your libido will be low, and if it comes up to a normal level, it will improve it. Um, but maybe that was also done on rats and on uh, mussels, so who knows? Who knows, really? Um, if you're a vegetarian and you need zinc, eat pumpkin seeds, which don't look sexy at all, but it's fine. Um, so are they really, are they really like the sexiest sexy food of the ocean that will help you bone? Maybe, maybe. Just pass them back and forth between someone's mouth, it'll be fine. Uh, my favorite is Donderma. Who knows what Donderma is? It's uh, stretchy ice cream. I tried to make it 100 years ago. You can buy it down in Bay Ridge. Uh, it's ice cream that stretches, which is why I call it stretchy ice cream. And the reason why it stretches is because uh, it has a powder from the root of an orchid. And this particular orchid um, is called uh, Satyrian root. And if you use your, you know, zooming eyeballs, if you look down here at these roots, <laughs> and it's like, nah, let's just zoom in there. <laughs> so, I don't know. I understand why they think that would make sense. It doesn't actually make you virile, but I don't, you know, I like it. Uh, <laughs> the ice cream is really good. So Spanish fly, I feel like when, when I was like a kid, when I was like 12, I was like, Spanish fly is a thing. Maybe it was advertised in back to magazines. Like, I don't know. But what it would do is it would, in theory, make women, specifically women or especially women, uh, have their libido increase. So they're like, have some of this thing. They want a bone. 
Uh, my favorite thing about this is that guy's facial hair. <laughs> I don't think he has any problems pulling. But <laughs> so, uh, what is Spanish fly from? Oh, it's from a, the Spanish fly, which is a beetle. Um, it is a beetle that is also known as a blister beetle because if you eat it, you will get blisters in your mouth and maybe you'll even die if you eat enough of them. You probably shouldn't. Uh, put it on your list, Sarah, of ways to kill men. Um, <laughs> so the reason why this is an aphrodisiac and a lot of other things are aphrodisiacs is because if you ingest something that is an uh, irritant and then you expel it from your body, that irritation follows down through your body, so you start to get a little, little itchy, a little extra blood flow down there, because your body's like, I don't really like what's happening here. But your mind is like, increased blood flow to my genital regions. Yes, I'm ready to go. So that's, that's it, that's it. Uh, and it's, you know, this can be found everywhere else. Kama Sutra, um, there are some really good recipes in there for things like, okay, so they break, I broke things down into sexual performance and libido increasing, and they break them down into um, maintaining vigor and making people your sex slaves. So same <laughs> kind of thing. I call this one the pepper penis. If a man, after anointing his penis with a mixture of white thorn apple, long pepper, black pepper, and honey, engages in sexual union with a woman, he makes her subject to his will. Sounds like she'll just be unhappy. Maybe he'll be unhappy too. <laughs> Um, but there are also some recipes that some are actually pretty good sounding. <laughs> Ghee, honey, sugar, licorice, fennel juice, milk. I was going to make this for you guys, but I thought they would need a dick instead. Uh, <laughs> rice, sparrow eggs, milk, ghee, and honey. The testicle of a ram or goat put with milk and sugar. So milk and sugar, just focus on that part. It's fine. Um, recently, here, we'll skip ahead to this. So who has seen this ad on the subway, right? Yeah, and you're like, what's this? Well, it's not this thing, it's not this thing, um, which uh, is something that was pitched as a, it's called an aphrodisiac for women to increase sex drive um, or to, let's say, repair low sex drive. And it also works for men. And it was originally used as a self-tanning agent, but then they started to take like feedback from the people who, like, it, like they were testing it as a self-tanning agent. And then people were writing like, what happened when they took it? And one of them was, on a scale of one to five, <laughs> this erection is a six. <laughs> and so they were like, great, put it out on the market. This is gonna be wonderful. It's not available on the market yet, except it's about to be. Although people do totally uh, have like YouTube tutorials about how to like buy it from random places from other countries and then put it into your body. It's really popular in bodybuilding forums. Um, probably because they're roiding up. But it's now, um, in theory, the FDA, in theory, uh, is approving it. So it will be like out in the world to compete against this drug here, um, which is called, uh, what's the long name of it? Flibansterin, Flibansterin. Terrible name, but it's fine. It's how drugs go. Uh, Really, really interesting articles if you read up on this. It's just like a ton of like selling things and people don't like it and maybe it's a lie and maybe it's not a lie and there's intrigue and just like, I think it's a Wall Street Journal article. Um, Google it, look it up, it'll be great. I don't have time to tell you about it. But I do have time to tell you about chocolate. <laughs> so now that you all have had some chocolate, how are you feeling? 
feeling good, feeling sexy? Yeah, you're actually not, and I'll get to why later. <laughs> so there's a chemical, there's a chemical called PEA um, that produces feel-good neurotransmitters in the brain, and they're like, this is why chocolate is an aphrodisiac, because it has this chemical in it. It's not true, it just gets eaten up in your stomach by chemicals, and it doesn't go into your brain, sorry. Um, but when you eat chocolate, chocolate tastes good, right? Unless it's white chocolate. Um, but if it tastes good, PEA gets released in your brain because your body's having a good time. So when you eat chocolate, it gets released whether it's like from the chocolate or not. Um, this guy here is what makes chocolate poisonous to cats and dogs, um, but it also is a mild stimulant. So in the same way that, like if I take a stimulant and I look at someone and my heart starts beating faster, you're like, oh, it's true love, isn't it? <laughs> or whatever. Whatever we're, whatever we're going to call that. Um, and then your body's like, yeah, yeah, sounds good. And your brain's like, yeah, yeah, sounds good. Um, so it's, it tricks your body, basically. Or your body tricks itself into thinking you're attracted to someone because you're jacked up. Not that it's really, it's like the, the baby uh, caffeine that we talked about before. Um, unfortunately, white chocolate has literally nothing, none of these things in it. And it tastes like trash. So <laughs> if you eat white chocolate, it's not going to make you want a bone. Um, but, but there is a rumor that green M&Ms are aphrodisiacs, which is why the green M&M lady is a sexy lady <laughs> and not a dopey guy. Um, this was supposed to be animated, but watermelon has a compound in it, uh, citrulline, which produces uh, nitric oxide, which uh, changes blood vessels in the same way that Viagra does. But it doesn't just do it in your dick, it does it across your whole body. So in theory, instead of just getting like a little hard on, you get a heart on everywhere on your body <laughs> <laughs> and you turn into Voltron, um, which no one likes. Uh, additionally, it's only in the rind of watermelon, but hey, if you're from the South, pick pickled watermelon rind and then you're ready to bone with all, all limbs, all in. Um, hot peppers, also an aphrodisiac. Uh, we can probably figure out why these are an aphrodisiac without me telling you now. It's because when you eat food with a lot of hot peppers in it that is very spicy, your heart rate goes up, you start to flush. It's all of those same reactions on your body that you feel whenever you're physically attracted to someone, but it's just because you're fucking your body up with irritants. <laughs> and so your body's like, yeah, this is great, this is wonderful. Um, there's a thing called majoon, which now we're kind of like sliding into to more pleasant things. Um, and it's just like all the foods that taste good and then you blend it up. So it's like fruit and nuts and stuff and you eat it and it's great. It can be a paste or a milkshake a little confectionery ball, but it has a secret, and there's usually like weed or hashish or something in it. So there's a, um, there's an episode of uh, some Anthony Bourdain thing where he goes and he talks to these guys who are wearing animal masks who are making it, um, but you could make it yourself in theory. You can go get a bunch of these nut things, and if you happen to have some weed left over from like a weed dinner party that you threw once upon a time, um, you mix it together, and it's just like, this looks good. This is great. It's delicious. It doesn't really increase your libido or your sex drive, but it sounds pretty good. Last time I gave this talk, I fed this to everyone, and they were like, you just fed us all weed. And I was like, no, I didn't feed you all weed. I made another batch. <laughs> okay. Lessons learned. Lessons learned. I don't even know. I don't know. <laughs> it's Sarah, how's your dick feel right now? I feel, after 
ovulating and then eating dick soup, I feel like if someone looks at me too hard, I'm gonna get pregnant. So <laughs> that's good. Rough. Yeah. I did have that majoon that you made, and I um, cleaned my apartment for an hour and then took a nap. <laughs> um, so there's that. And I guess here's something I learned recently that really blew my mind, and something that came up in one of your talks. There's a great book by Mary Roach called Bonk, and it's about human sexuality and science. And so actually, the the pills that you mentioned, they talk about in there too. Um, here, all right, mind-blowing fact to end the evening. Lesson learned about vaginal fluid. <laughs> <laughs> I, in this book, I just found out I am 37 years old. I didn't know this about my own body. Vaginal fluid is plasma, the plasma in your blood. <laughs> Wait, what was my actual reaction when I read this? Blood, go when you are aroused, your blood goes into your vagina and some of that blood seeps through the vaginal walls in the form of plasma. It is the plasma in your blood that you can donate. What the fuck? <laughs> Why did huh. no one tell us this? Well, it's, well, it's, it's uh, also the patriarchy because sexuality hasn't been really studied, especially women's sexuality, um, blah, 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 blah. But yes, I just read this uh, this like last week about my own body, and now I can't get it out of my head. So I give it to you. I'm gonna figure out so many facts about my body <laughs> for next month. Yeah, of course it's, it's facts great. about your body. Like I don't know what they are though. But <laughs> no, we'll save it. We'll save it. Keep them in suspense. What are we talking about next month? Next month we're talking about uh, what goes in must come out. Oh, right. The secret life, your gastrointestinal tract. Um, we will hopefully, knock on wood, have a toilet expert here as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm going to be talking about prehistoric poop and what it tells us about uh, early humans. Um, and it's going to be a good time, and that's going to be February 25th, I believe. Last Monday in February, and we're back the last Monday of every single month. You can also subscribe on iTunes to the MSG podcast. We do the live shows a couple months on delay, so if you liked it, you want to share it, you missed one, you can catch up on there too. And there is so much dick still up here, so <laughs> go, go hog wild on it. Have a great night, everybody, and thank you for coming. <laughs>